how are you? Welcome to Take a Shower, Show Up on Time and Don't Steal Anything. I'm a little bit hoarse and I keep clearing my throat and I keep coughing because I've got this nasty throat infection. I've had it for about a month or so. Finally went to the doctor yesterday and uh, they stuck a scope up my nose, down my throat, looked at the vocal cords and it's just a, like a throat infection. But God, is it a pain in the neck and I cough and I clear my throat. So uh, be ready for that delight during the podcast. I want to get right into this one because... We have a special guest on the show today who's like a radio buddy of mine, and we've worked together and we've like, you know, shared ideas and things like that. He's in Phoenix. His name is Matthew Blades. He's got a Minnesota connection, and he's also got an incredible story about his struggle with drinking and struggle with alcohol. And uh, and the highlight, I think, of his story is, number one, the story itself of what that one event was that made him go... I got to stop this because I think a lot of people who struggle with alcohol might reach that point where they go, I got to stop this. And they do. Some people get to that point where they say, I got to stop this. And they don't. But also Matthew's story about how he was able to stop and uh, some of the roadblocks and hurdles. So let's jump right into it. This is Matthew and his story on this week's podcast of Take a Shower, Show Up on Time and Don't Steal Anything. Matthew Blades is a fellow radio dude, and we'll talk about that a little while in a, in a little bit here. Matthew, how are you? I'm good. Am I still a fellow radio guy, by the way? Well, I think you are because I think once you are, it's kind of like once you're a doctor, even when you retire, you're still doctor. Or once you are, you know, once you're in the military, you're always, you know, like you know, a soldier. So I think once you're in radio, you're always going to be a DJ to me. So, okay. Now you I like that. I'm great with that, by the way. I mean, I did it 27 years. I certainly put in my time. You have a Minneapolis connection. I mean, you're from here. That's right. Yeah. No, I was born in Coon Rapids, Minnesota back in 1973 okay. and uh, raised up there off of Egret Boulevard. Wow. And, uh, graduated from Coon Rapids Senior High School in 1992. So, but right now you're in Phoenix and you used to work at KWB and you and our paths crossed long ago, back in the nineties, you worked at KWB mid to late nineties here and there, right? 1996 specifically. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. And we met a couple of times and, um, we were just a little while ago talking about last chance summer dance, which was our huge annual concert down at Canterbury park and uh, that was the one where, I don't know if you were the one where the Backstreet Boys were scheduled to be on the bill, but they didn't perform. Were you at that show, Matthew? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Uh-uh. Oh, it was awful. It was, the Backstreet Boys were at the height of their fame, about 98 or so. And the Backstreet Boys were, you know, they were heartthrobs. So all of their 14 and 15-year-old fans got their early outdoor concert. And it was about 95 degrees that day, which was really weird because it was, it was September. It was like September 20th, really hot. And all these 14-year-old girls got there at 11 o'clock for a show that would start at about 4. So they're there, they're watching the opening acts, and they're waiting for Backstreet Boys to show up. Very long story short, the Backstreet Boys, three of them showed up. Two of them did not. They could not perform with only two of them. So all these girls who had been out in the blazing sun all day, not hydrating. Number one, did not get to see the Backstreet Boys, but they also were passing out, dropping like flies because it was hot and they weren't hydrated. So 
That was a good, it was, it was crazy. Uh, we could tell radio stories. Matter of fact, earlier in my podcast, I did a segment on radio horror stories. Uh, and that's probably one of my favorite radio horror stories off the top of your head to put you right on the spot. Matthew blades. Do you have a radio horror story, a promotion, a contest that went wrong, a listener who went crazy, any radio horror stories off the top of your head? Yeah, my favorite, my my absolute favorite, because it's like everybody's worst nightmare all coming to coming to fruition. So um, I, I'm an intern at KDWB and uh, I'm, I'm working for a couple of guys. And then I get my first break and I'm working at the, the, the St. Cloud station up the street, KCLD. And at KDWB, they had taken a couple of these songs and they looped the intro so that you guys had a little bit longer to talk up it. They didn't do that at uh, at KCLD, and so I, I I'm I'm literally it's 12:03. It's my very first break ever by myself on the radio. I'm not an intern anymore. I finally have my own overnight show. I'm so excited. I start the positioning statement, and Michelle starts singing, and I'm not even halfway done with what I want to oh. say yet. And I mean to tell you, I just walked all over the intro to that thing, and. <laughs> I mean, thank God I have a short-term memory. Yeah, because, no kidding. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it was a mess. It was a mess. That you know what? You'll never forget it, though. I mean, you remember the artist. You said Michelle. What was the artist that you were playing? Michelle Nadeggio Cello and John Mellencamp's Wild Night. Wow. You will never forget that. It's so funny because, you know, we radio people, especially when we're newer, we think that sounds so cool to talk over the instrumental intro of a song that, you know, we always know how long it is. It'll say on the song like nine seconds or 14 seconds, and you stop talking right as the artist starts to sing, and it sounds so cool. But the worst you can do is talk while they are singing, and that's exactly what you did. Oh, all over it. I mean, I probably kept going for about another. And then it was one of those things where I was so new in the business. I was like, well, I don't really know what the rule is here. Do I finish what I need to say? Do yep. I just turn the microphone off and and get out of this thing? And I think I opted in to finish out what I had to say. And uh, and then I just turned off the microphone and I played a few sweepers. Oh, that's great. I love it. Now, Matthew has gone on to a very successful broadcasting career. You most recently have been down in Phoenix, and uh, you worked at a big station down in Phoenix for a long time, and you recently got off on your own thing, which I want to touch on here in a few minutes. But because we're talking about drinking, um, I've known Matthew fairly well. We've met several times in person. My son used to be an intern for your morning show, and you were very kind to give him an internship, and uh, and he loves you, by the way. Um, he's legendary. I would take him. I would take him for anything I ever had to do again. I don't even care what it is. He's that kind of person. You want him by your side. Chase Chase is is a is a good. He's a good boy. He really is. And Matthew asked me a couple of weeks ago. He's like, "Hey, I forget exactly how it came up, but it's like I've got a story about drinking." I can do your podcast. I'm like, you do? Because Matthew's one of these guys that's really together. And I think you are kind of exactly the kind of person that I'm reaching on the podcast where you would never suspect that Matthew has ever struggled with anything because Matthew is is one of those people like, Matthew's got his shit together. Uh, and you do have your shit together. But let's talk, let's go back to your drinking days. I mean, 
I don't know if you want to start with the story that changed your life or if you want to give me the build up to that story, wherever you want to start. That's what I think the value of this podcast is, is people go, wow, somebody who seems like they have their act together really was struggling. So wherever you want to start. Well, you know, I don't know how many people have come on and had this version of a story, but I remember being three or four years old and having my first sip of beer. Uh, I remember my dad, you know, having me on his knee and and giving me my my first sip of uh, beer and my father was a uh he was a really functioning alcoholic um and so i grew up uh in an environment where everybody around me drank there was there was never not alcohol anywhere um i'm not joking when i tell you that santa claus showed up drunk one time at 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 a, at a holiday reunion right like these were good old blue collar boys from Coon Rapids who had just come back from Vietnam three or four, you know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were letting it rip, man. And and that that is exactly the environment that I grew up in. So seeing that probably did a couple of things to me. It 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 made me not want to do it in some respects. And then I think it drew me in in others. Okay, and I think that's that's the variable in a lot of these stories is some people say, yeah, I grew up with teetotaler parents and they never drank. And then I talk to other people who say, yeah, there was booze around all the time. And there are people who've been in both situations. Some drink, some do not. Did that affect your drinking as you got a little bit older or your view on alcohol? Yeah, you know what's interesting for me, Dave, is that like I didn't, I wasn't a teenager who drank. I didn't even really have my first sip of alcohol until I was about, I think, 18 or 19 years old. Um, and it was that god-awful um, <laughs> malt liquor that everybody used to drink, Zima. Zima! Um, oh, yes. Zima. Wow. <laughs> so that was like the, my, my introduction to, to uh, the, the world of alcohol. Um, you know <sighs> – my story is kind of interesting because, like I said, I didn't start drinking off at a young age. I didn't even really get into it. As a matter of fact, I was a little bit more into smoking pot than I was drinking, to be totally honest with you. Okay. In my like 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 years old, it wasn't until I stopped smoking pot for a girl that I started drinking a lot more. At the age of what you said, 21, 22, right around there? Yeah. Right. Right. And then, um, I really got inward at the age of 23 because you, you think about KDWB, man, I have a really crazy story about KDWB. So it's, uh, August, I think the date is the 27th or something like that, or the 20, 25th, 26th, doesn't really matter. It's a summer in August. It's a Sunday night. I've been an intern at KDWB for a long time. And then they finally offered me a position where I get to, you know, run a couple of these countdown shows and, and then do a little something on Sunday night from eight to 10. Right. And um, at four thirty on on that Sunday night, my father had a heart attack uh, and died. And I never I never got to that that shift at KDWB, obviously. I, I really have never got back to work for KDWB after that. I, it was it was a real pivotal moment in my life. And I mentioned that because you need context, right? We, we, we reach for alcohol or anything else 
because you know it, it provides a certain escapism for us and so i'm giving you a sense of what i was trying to get away from um and that, that's really i think what then kind of upticked things as i got into an industry as you well know man where it's like alcohol is promoted i mean you are the fun guy you're supposed to be the party and um that was that was a really dangerous place for me to be in uh, as a guy who was really now dealing with my dad's death, 23, 24, 25, I was at a big market in Washington, D.C., making a lot of money, and I had a lot of time to do whatever I wanted to do. And and that started the uh, – that is the beginning, Dave, for me of really where my addiction with alcohol began. And it starts so subtly that you don't even realize – how did it start for you – and what was your, I hate the overuse of the word journey, but your journey from like, hey, I'm just here to party to, oh man, this is a problem. Yeah. You know, at first it wasn't a problem because it didn't have kids. There was not, there wasn't many ramifications, right? There wasn't much that I was going to do outside of like driving under the influence, which I'd never did, but there was, there was nothing like that that I was going to really do to hurt anybody around me. And so there wasn't a ton of ramifications. And at the, at, I would say in 2004 is where things start to get, I don't know what the word is, Dave, but I, I start drinking more for sure. Okay. Um, I, I've just taken a big job in Washington, DC and we're there like 13 months and we get bought out and they flip the format and they write us a big check. And I have, you know, basically thousands of dollars in my account and zero job and all the time in the world on my hands. Mm. And that presented just monster issues, man, monster issues. So at that point, you were probably pretty, I mean, were you kind of devastated with the job loss? You're so right. I want to, I want to just back up for a second. You know, we, when we drink a lot of the time we start drinking because there's something painful that we want to escape from you with your, with your sudden loss of your father, my gosh, at 23 years old, you know, I think about how, you know, if, if, if that happened to me, Carson's 20 years old, you know, it would be, it, it, it it's a huge effect on a child, no question. And so you kind of drank to escape that, but then you found yourself with another problem. You got time and money on your hands and you like to drink. A lot, man. <clears throat> I was, and, and I was like my father, right? I was really a functional alcoholic. I don't, I don't think that anybody around me would have, would have known that it was an issue. I don't think they would have known that it was a problem. Um, uh, there, there, there. I, I guarantee, I was so careful that there, there's probably a handful of incidents out there in the world where I acted like a total knucklehead and uh, got somebody's attention because of the way that I was behaving. But you know, otherwise, I was very calm, man, very cool, very. I could drink two bottles of wine and finish it off with three or four glasses of scotch, and that was a perfect night. Wow. And what um, would what would you have said, Matthew, to I mean, at that age, if somebody was said, Matthew, you're drinking too much, we would have said, You're a buzzkill. Shut up. I'm just enjoying the party. What was your attitude toward your drinking back then, if you remember it all? I'll be honest with you, man. Um, I had already started to feel a little bit of the guilt and shame that I think brings us down that path directly. And when people said that to me, it just made me feel worse about the situation. Um, and, and like I said, man, it didn't come up very much, right? My wife was never in my ear about it. Nobody was ever in my ear about it. People, 
I don't think they were alerted to the fact that it was an issue until it became an issue, you know, and, and that was December 15th, 2006. Let's talk about that day, December 15th. I mean, obviously a, a landmark day in your life because you remember without hesitation, what happened on that date? So I'm at a radio station in Denver, Colorado, and I've got a six month old baby at home and uh, my wife is at home too. And Gordy, our oldest is pretty, uh, as he's got a lot of acid reflux problems as a, as a young kid. And as a result, you know, anybody who's had a parent who's dealt, been down that road, you know, there's lots of crying, there's lots of sleepless nights. He doesn't feel good. There's all these things that are happening. And, um, I have my company Christmas party and my kids are, my kid is at home with my wife and I go to my company Christmas party and I probably have, I, I probably have seven glasses of scotch before 10 o'clock. Can I, can um, now, I, 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 I want to just stop there for a second. Please. Not yeah, to, I love pausing, man, for sure. Not to interrupt you, but were you the fun guy? Was this like, dang, Matthew's here. Matthew's like, he gets on the dance floor. He grabs the microphone. He's funny. Were you the fun drunk at the party or were you the like, oh God, Matthew's getting drunk again or somewhere in between? Yeah, I think probably somewhere in between. I think but, but by and large, I was I was a pretty fun guy to be around. And, and um, you know, I think about some of the legendary nights that I had in my drinking career is what I call it, right? Like some of those legendary nights where we would be at nightclubs and, and spend six and $700 on our bar tab and wow. um, have the greatest nights ever that ended in the morning. And, you know, don't get me wrong, right? Like a good dose of that's okay. A good, a good healthy dose of that is, is perfectly respectable and, and, you know, somewhat encouraged, right? You should get out there and you should live your life. But the problem for me, Dave, was that I came from a history of addicts and I, it was, the writing was so clear on the wall for me where I was headed with the way I was drinking that, um, that, that, that night when, when kind of the shit hit the fan, if you will, it, it was like, okay, you, you, you must decide right here and now what happens next. So what happened that night in December, uh, of 2006, you're at the company Christmas party, your wife is home with the baby, six month old Gordy. And Gordy is probably what got to be 16 or 18 by now. He is 16, almost 16. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And so you're at the Christmas party and you're drinking a lot. What happens? So uh, it's it's probably ten o'clock, and and it's clear that things are starting to wrap up, and I'm I'm just getting going, man. And uh, I, I think, you know, you don't know this at the time, and I don't think that I think this is important to talk about. You don't understand it at the time, but you're not in any hurry to get home. You know, it's waiting for you back home. You got a crying baby, a wife who's tired. You got all the things, right? And I'm not even a jerk. I'm somebody who sits here and kind of thinks about that and feels bad about it, but the booze takes over and the booze wants to have more fun. And, you know, my problem, like I just said, was I came from a family of addicts, man. I mean, I'm not somebody who can have just one I, for whatever reason that just never worked for me. Um, and so it's like 10 o'clock. It's a snowstorm. Mind you, we're in Denver in, uh, you know, Denver in December. Uh, and I'm too drunk to drive. Right. Because I've had eight or nine glasses of scotch by this point. And so I walk home and I don't live anywhere close to this, this place. In fact, I, I think I have to walk four miles to, to my house in the snow. I'm in a suit and I'm wasted. 
I admire and your I presence of mind not to, to drive because there's a lot of people who they would have driven. And I admire at least you had the presence of mind to not drive or you would not maybe wouldn't be here or there might be somebody else who's alive now that wouldn't be here. So thank you for not driving three yeah, miles, yeah, three or right? four miles so to walk to home. What yeah. in that moment makes you makes you decide you're not going to get behind the wheel because any alcoholic that's honest with themselves says and owns full well that there were times you were drunk behind the wheel. Yep. And there were times where you buzzed behind the wheel. There were times where you were probably not okay to drive and you still did. But yep. for whatever reason that night, I think it was because I knew how gone I was, to be honest with you, okay. Dave. I, I mean, I was I was feeling pretty – I was feeling no pain. I mean, right, to walk home in a, sto- in a snowstorm for four miles, like I, I wasn't feeling anything, clearly. Clearly, yeah, and, wow. And so I get – to our neighborhood and there's a um, gas station and a liquor store right on the corner by our neighborhood. And I go to the liquor store because I'm not done. I want to go buy some more booze and uh, they're closed and uh, they're, I can't get in. And so I'm pissed and I go two more blocks to my house and I'm so wasted. I can't even get my keys. And so I knock on my front door and my wife has to get up the baby's screaming. <clears throat> she lets me in. And, and what happens is I'm, I'm too drunk to be a dad. I can't do anything in the moment. Um, I'm, I'm required to go and pass out now because that's, that's how I feel. So um, we're, so your ahead. wife, obviously frustrated, upset, probably angry at you because she needs your help and you come home drunk. Totally, man. And yeah. and what a letdown for me too, right? And it just kind of built it built onto the story that I already had for myself, which is, you know, that I let people down. I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned that story about my father because it's important that people really drill into the reason they drink or they reach for it if they do it too much. And a lot of times it's because we're trying to escape that thing that's really been nipping at us, right? And um, a weird thing happens when your dad dies in your arms. Uh, and one of those weird things is that you feel a little responsible. You feel a little like you, you didn't know enough. You feel a little like you couldn't save your dad. Right. And that's, yeah. and that's just real. That that's what happens. That's a wiring that takes place. And, um, I, I clearly was, was trying to escape, the feelings that were coming along with it. And then when I couldn't help my own kid, it just, it, it, it was like a compound fracture, to be honest with you. So when did you, was it the next morning? Was it when you talked to your wife? When did something switch in your brain and say, Matthew, we got to deal with this? Yeah. So it was the very next morning. <clears throat> I got up the next morning. I had a bedroom off to the, to the side of ours uh, where, where I had a studio and I, I went in and uh, I wrote a handwritten note to my son and to my wife, and I owned it, man, just completely, fully, and said, listen, I, I grew up with this. I know where this is headed, and I vowed to not be a part of that ever again, and um, I, will, I will never drink again. I will never have alcohol again as long as I live because I know what it does for me, and um, I, I – wrote that letter. I gave it to him and I, I went for a walk and I don't really remember what happened next, but, um, you know, she's still with me and we have another baby. So it worked out. Yeah. What, it, it, when you, when you do the thing where you say, I will never drink again, 
you and I probably both know how common that is where somebody gets a DUI and says they'll never drink again, or they get into a fight with their spouse and they take a swing at them, or they fall down the stairs or they get drunk in front of the kids or whatever, and they say, I'll never drink again. But it was different for you because you actually did never drink again. And I know a lot of people who have said, I'll never drink again. I think it's a very common thing, and and I'm not judging anybody who says that. But what made it possible, Matthew, to stop because you were addicted and you loved to drink? What made, how did you stop at that point? Was it just out of sheer guilt and determination? Or why were you, how were you able to stop? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, what what is that instinctively inside that just flipped the switch for me? It would be great to <clears throat> maybe nail that down totally. I, I honestly, for me, man, it was I was ready, uh, th- and I think that's that's the place that ultimately everybody has to get to, right? It's just, what's so frustrating about addiction is that you're not going to save that person until they're ready to be saved, and that's hard to watch and that's hard to be on the sidelines and and sit and be a bystander by right like especially if you're a dude your your innate sense is to want to jump in and help and fix um and so for me man it was a little bit of determination but honestly i i flipped the switch and i really except for a handful of days and nights i never looked back and it's never bothered me my wife has a glass of wine in front of me to this day. It's it's not even a thing I think about. Um, and and uh, that's that's where I'm at with it. So I think for me, it was just I had finally gotten to a point, dude, where I took all the family history. I, I knew exactly where it was headed. And I was like, you got to be a lightning bolt and stop this cycle right now. I admire that so much because it's hard to stop. And that's why there's so many people who want to stop. And they can't. And I don't understand the psychology, and I'm not going to try to understand the getting to a place where you really want to stop or you're really not sure you want to stop. I mean, I think that everybody's been to a point where they say, God, I really want to stop. But they really don't because they want to. And I've known somebody in my life. They're like, I don't want to stop. I just want to be able to drink in control. I want to be able to drink on weekends. I want to be able to have a glass of wine here and there. And I don't want to stop. And that's just and, it, right? These, these, and I, and I dealt with this a lot, right? It was like, why can't I have a healthy relationship with alcohol, right? I can, I can see so many people around me that have that healthy relationship. They can go to, they can go to dinner, they have a glass of wine, they have a beer, and they're done. They can go out to a party, they can have two drinks, and then they can switch it off, and they can do it, right? I, I don't know what it is. I, I wasn't born with that ability, right? When it comes to alcohol, that was just one of those things where the floodgates opened up for me. And, um, you know, I've said it several times already. I just had to own that, man. And and owning that means stopping it. It means you don't do it anymore. And that's the hard part. And I think it scares a lot of people. They say, I don't want to stop. So they keep drinking and, uh, you know, you talk about the person who has a glass of wine with dinner or a beer and that's and a couple of drinks at a party. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I've told people in my life, it's like, hey, everybody gets just blasted drunk once in a while. I mean, we've all done it. Even people who are, you know, like really teetotalers or only drink a couple of times a month. They've all had a story. Most of them haven't had a story where it's like, yeah, I mean, my own son, I, he's in college, Carson. And he got really drunk at a Super Bowl party. And I'm like, you know what? It's all part of growing up and learning and learning your limits and that type of thing. 
Um, uh, but it's not, the, it's the people who, like yourself, you couldn't have just one drink. You wanted to have three or four until you really couldn't have any more. You passed out. So all these years later, Matthew, and I know that you're you're at a point where you watch your wife have a drink, a glass of wine, and you don't even bat an eye. What about temptations between since then? Let's say you're at a company party in 2011, and everybody's at the bar, and they're saying, Matthew, have a drink. Were you tempted? Were you like, nope? Not even close. Did you ever almost give in? Yeah, I never did. Uh, to answer that question out of the gate, I never, I never folded or or caved or had a sip or tried it. Um, <clears throat> and it didn't bother me, to be honest. I, 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 again, I really just, I had to do. I did this for me and and for for nobody else. And so. I had it in my head that it was not going to present itself as a problem. I was not going to allow it to be, I wasn't going to be some judgy dude who was out there, but here's what does happen when you stop drinking. There are certain things about your life that change, right? And you, you come to, you come to realize how centrally focused drinking is to everything that you have in your life. And when you remove alcohol, those, those things usually go away alongside it. And um, and what that opens up is a lot of new opportunities, uh, you know, new networking opportunities, new job opportunities, all the things. Uh, but it is it is a little bit scary to be on the other side thinking about, you know, what, what's it going to be like when you get over there? I think that is what keeps a lot of people drinking because they can't imagine life without that experience, without that crutch, without that even, you know, there I've known people who drink because, well, one of the reasons is they love the feel of a wine glass in their hand. I mean, right. you know, and I've known people who tried to stop by putting Fresca in their wine glass. And, you know, it's probably not a bad substitute. I used to do that with gin and tonics when I basically cut way back on my drinking. I would just drink a tonic with a lime in it. And it was a good substitute because I had a chili glass in my hand with something that kind of tasted like a gin and tonic, but was harmless. So, Matthew, I want to talk about, first of all, thanks for telling your story. Um, uh, and, and it's so admirable to talk to somebody who just decided that's it. Tell me about, you've got a podcast that I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast could totally relate to. You do a podcast where basically you're learning from other people's experiences, kind of like this podcast originated by my book. Tell me about your podcast. Yeah, it's so it, there's so many similarities, right? There's just so much power in, in pure presentations and pure therapy. And, and, you know, we really forget about that. And COVID has allowed us to slide into a space of, isolation and you know just not just in in general just not being as connected as we are used to or really we need and so what people are looking for i found more than anything is they're looking for somebody who has a story like them because they want to feel like they're freaking normal right like that's there's so much power and and me too and oh my god i had the same experience i mean you all know that that feeling when you run into somebody in your life who's whatever it is jumping out of a plane. And as soon as you bond on that moment, you, you both are in another place. Um, and uh, there's just so much 
to learn from people who have been through it. And that's what the podcast is called, Learn From People Who Lived It. And um, it's it's not just about drinking, although we've had some addicts on there, but this one focuses more on really difficult traumas. You know what I mean? I don't want to it's really super dangerous to play the compare game. I think that's a space that we a lot of times get into. We, we try to compare our trauma or our pain or our experience to the other people. And as far as I can tell, the, the most useful that is, is just offers you a little bit of perspective, right? If, if nothing else, that's it. <clears throat> um, but when you're, when you're listening to somebody and you're really seeing yourself in their story, you almost have transformation yourself. And there may be somebody right now listening to us and what you have said is like hit them in their heart and their soul, right? Like all of us have that thing, I think, that we're looking for. And I love talking to addicts because I think addicts are actually a really beautiful group of people. Um, if you ever read Deepak Chopra's book <clears throat> about addiction, he talks about this and he talks about how addicts ultimately are just the, they're they're seeking they're seeking that heavenly feeling, right? They're seeking that great space. They just want to feel good because they're so tired of feeling bad. And on some levels, that's admirable. It's uh, on some levels, you can understand why they keep going back to it all the time, right? But the problem is that it's unhealthy for them and the way that they're consuming it. Anyways, long story short, you see yourself in somebody else's story. Real transformation takes place. And that is the power of these stories. I think that's one of the things that people have, have, have enjoyed or related to about this podcast, and I never expected this, is people see themselves in their stories. Wow, you said something really powerful a little while ago. Addicts, and I'm going to paraphrase what you said. You can correct me, Matthew. Addicts just want to feel good because they're so tired of feeling bad. Is that kind of what you yeah. said? Yeah, it's exactly what I said. I, I, it's in, so true. I mean, you really are seeking a feeling. You are, and, and that's what you're chasing ultimately, right? You're chasing something different than what you're feeling at the moment. And man, who can't understand why somebody would want that? Who I can, right? I can understand why somebody who grew up in a home of domestic violence and a violent dad and saw awful things as a child and then had more bad experiences as a 20-year-old, I can understand why they would want to put a drink to their lips every single night. That makes sense to me, right? But now I'm in a space where I want to help them understand why they're doing that so they can ultimately figure it out and set that down, right? Um, and, and in short, those people still have that the, the story is still running their show, right? The story is still running their game. And until they set it down, until they make peace with it, um, they, they will probably continue to drink just like I did. And a lot of people don't know what to do other than drink. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't have time for therapy. I don't have time for counseling. I can't afford it. I can't get in. The nearest one is too far, whatever the reasons or excuses are. So the easiest thing to do is run down to Total Wine and grab another box of Chardonnay. And, uh, you know, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's true. It's a lot yeah. of the time, it's just easier to just keep doing. And I think a lot of people say, I'm not going to do this forever. I've talked to people on the show. It's like, well, I don't plan on doing this forever. I'm not going to live my entire life and die because I couldn't stop drinking by, by the end of the month or by the first day of summer or when I get my new job or when I finally find that right person or when I finally get out of debt. And, and there's always something though. Wouldn't you agree that there's always something that's like, I'll be happy when, but then you find an excuse not to be happy. 
it's really the ultimate thing that you have to solve for yourself, right? Because you have to get happy now. Uh, you 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 can't if if when is always a part of your vocabulary. And while you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that we have to do a better job of, especially as addicts, we have to do a better job of using the correct language. And when you use the correct language, things shift. For example, and I had a friend kind of, you know, implement this to me. It's like, if you don't want to go to counseling, but you'd rather go to Total Wine, I'd rather use this kind of language. I'm not worth counseling. I'm worth a Michelob Ultra. Hmm. Say that four or five times, and I bet you stop going to the liquor store and you finally wake up and you go, maybe I am worth a little therapy. Um, using the correct language for addicts is one of those things that's really important for us. We have to articulate our feelings because I really know in my heart that people want to help us. They really want to be there for us. Your wife, your kids, you know, your support system, the people that you work with at the radio station, they all want to be there for you. Uh, and, and if you said the three most powerful words in the English language, I need help, people would race to be by your side. Um, and that's something that I'm hoping to impress on a lot of people right now is that the universe wants this for you so badly. Like th the world wants to give you all of this stuff and all of this freedom. You just have to finally get out of your own way. Set the story down. Stop telling yourself you're not worth it. Start using the right words and you will see real transformation. It's just I, I did it myself and I know it works. I like that. The three powerful words, I need help. I was at an Elton John concert a couple of years ago, and, you know, I'm everybody loves Elton John, and he's got it together, yeah. and he's got a perfect life, and he's rich, and he's wonderful. And Elton John said, hey, toward the end of his concert, I remember he was talking, and he said, hey, if you have a drinking problem, I had a drinking problem, I went down a very dark road. He said, if you need help, ask for help, and you will get help. And, you know, I, I think that's mostly true. You know, as I say that, though, Matthew, I worry that there are people who may be listening that are in a situation where they don't have help available. They got a shitty spouse. They got rotten parents. They got friends who love to party and drink. And they might not have a place to go for help. And they certainly might not have the money to call up Hazelden or Betty Ford and say, I need help. You know, I, I love that you brought this up, man, because... Um this, so the, the, the reason that I left radio and got into this new line of work was ultimately like I, I said all those things that you just said, right? I, I said, you don't, you know, you're, you're fine. You don't deserve this. You don't, you know, need to do that. Uh, you don't have the resources. There's nobody that can fix you. You need to keep doing what you're doing. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is like those, those things that we tell ourselves, they, they feel really true. And so I empathize with people because when you're in a really bad situation, I, you, you are, that's your environment and you're in that situation and it's really hard. But um, let me give you a little wind in your sails. I'm in my third day of my retreat this past summer and I'm, I'm, I'm visiting with this guy who is like a healer, dude, and he plays a drum as we're talking. And he looks at me after the third day and he says, you're a transitional character in your lineage. Did you know that? And I said, I had no, I don't even know what that is, dude. And yeah, like, what? what What are you talking about? Right. And so he goes on to tell me, he's like, some people come into the world and they just feel a little disconnected to their environment. The things around them don't make a lot of sense. They don't necessarily feel like they're in the right place and they're looking to shift. They're looking to break generational cycles. And these are the really important people. These are the folks who are really here to transition generations through their stuff, Right. 
And um, learning that for me was a real game changer because it's allowed me to really lean into that space. And um, if you're in a really tough situation right now and you just you're you know, you're kind of screaming at yourself that you need to get out. I mean, you do. You, you need to get out and you do need to find a different place and an environment for some people like it's that dramatic for some. Right. Some folks can make a shift within their group and stay OK. But a lot of us have to let some people go and we have to let some situations go. It's just it's the only way out of it. Well, last week on the podcast, we talked to a woman named Angie who she would go out with her friends and get blackout drunk until her friends finally said, we hate going out with you anymore. We're not mm. going to hang out with you. So you know what she did? She found friends that welcomed her to be blackout drunk, that encouraged her. And she's very social and outgoing. So she would go to the bar and make friends with people who would encourage her and allow her to get blackout drunk. And then she said, just like you said, you got it. She had to cut those people out of her life and not see them anymore. Mm. Matthew, thanks, man. I got to tell you, you uh, I've always admired you because Matthew is just one of those chill souls. He's just like a very, mm. the Matthew you're hearing right now is the real Matthew. He's just a very chill soul. And, uh, and I appreciate that about you. And I know that you have your moments like we all have our moments, but I think that uh, that's one of the things that I admire about you. Matthew, plug your podcast because... I think a lot of people that listen will get something out of your podcast because shared experiences where you go, oh, my God, I hear myself in that story. Your yeah. podcast is called Learn From People Who Lived It, right? That's it, man. Super easy to find. You just search it pretty much anywhere. It's on every platform you can possibly imagine. And, um, you know, but, but before I go, man, I like to leave everybody with this statement that truly changed my life, Dave. I mean, it really changed my life. And it was this phrase of, you're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need to step into your life's purpose more. And those words change my life. And I really think they have the power to change other people's lives because especially if you're drinking and especially if it's just in a, in a shitty place, boy, you can get to that. You can get to a, a really dangerous spot mentally where you feel broken, where you feel like there's something wrong with you. And I'm encouraging you to think the polar opposite and start finding out what's right with you because there's just so many people cheering for you. As you say that, I know that, you know, one of our podcasts is not going to change any, I mean, I don't know, but the reason I bring that up is there is a resource for you. And I thought about this a minute ago when I said, Hey, if you don't have the money for a resource or whatever, and you don't know what the next step is, it's like, okay, uh, we talked to a woman named Jessica a couple of weeks ago, maybe more than a month ago, and she has offered up her email address. So if you have a problem or a question and you've listened to Matthew and you're like, I want to talk to somebody more about what Matthew had to say. Uh, mm. Jessica is a licensed drug and alcohol counselor, and her email address is for you to use anytime you want to. I don't know how often she checks it, but I think she checks it frequently, and she can point you in the right direction. Jessica.alvarez.com. L-A-D-C at gmail.com. Jessica.A-L-V-A-R-E-Z. Alvarez. L-A-D-C at gmail.com. Hey, Matthew, I know I've kept you a lot. I said, I said, Matthew, I said, hey, I'll call you on uh, Thursday night. It'll be about 30 minutes or so. And we'll catch up and we'll bullshit. And we got radio stuff to talk about and friends and mutual friends and things like that. I've now wasted Matthew's time. Not wasted, but I've now taken no, up an no, hour. I've enjoyed all the moments. An hour and 23 minutes of Matthew's time. And, and that's how you know it was a good date. So thank you for being a great date, Matthew.
No sweat, dude. And and since you plug that therapist, let me also remind people of this very truth, which is therapy isn't about fixing what's broken. It's about helping you deal with the sound of your record, man. So a lot of us just lack the skills. Talk to somebody who knows how to hell to put this thing in in a sequence that makes sense to you and just get in it because, you know, uh, you, you're you're you, we just don't get the best version of people when when they when they allow themselves to be locked up into that space. And uh, like I said a few minutes ago, man, everybody's cheering for you. Everybody wants you to be successful and have it all. So go get it. Hey, thanks again to Matthew Blades for being a guest on the podcast this week. His podcast, which I listen to, and I think you'll really like it. Check it out. Learn from people who lived it. And is, isn't it funny how Matthew and I didn't copy each other, but we both came up with basically an outlet for learning from your mistakes or learning from people who had an experience. My book is called Take a Shower, Show Up on Time, and Don't Steal Anything. And it's all about learning from watching other people, including me, make mistakes so you don't have to make the same mistakes. And Matthew's podcast, Learn From People Who Lived It. So anybody who underwent a traumatic experience uh, or struggled with something, you can learn from their story. So definitely check out his podcast. I got a couple of emails that I want to read. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I'm not sure if you remember Aaron, but Aaron was the one, and I keep referring back to Aaron because her story to me is such a powerful story. And Aaron is the one who drinks all the time, and she drinks in the middle of the night, and she comes home and she drinks, and she has a job, and she's got a car, and she's a wonderful person, and she, you know, she struggles, and uh, and she goes to AA and she lies about it. And so I got an email from Aaron, and uh, she wrote and said. Not to be cheesy, but I just want to say thank you. I've listened to our episode a number of times, and I even sent it to my most trusted friends. A friend, hearing my words felt different. I could feel compassion for that person that is hurting. And I've been able to string together some sober time since we talked. I really feel close to you because you've been there through me for me through middle school, high school, college, real life. Shit, you were there the day the doctor told me my dad was going to die. He ended up beating cancer. Yes! And to have you show me such compassion when I was talking about my most shameful secret uh, helped me show myself some compassion. I promise you this is going to be a fight, but one that I'm willing to start. Thank you for listening, Dave. Friends forever. Hey, you know what? I'm I'm so happy for you, Aaron. Uh, even if you get like a short period of clarity and sobriety out of this, that is a win. Um, I, I hope that you'll continue to keep working on this and, uh, either quit altogether, which I think is probably the most likely solution or get a healthier relationship with alcohol. So thank you. And again, thanks for sharing your story, which is a very powerful story. And, um, uh, I think a lot of people will remember that one. Next one, uh, Dave, I've been loving the podcast. I realized in my original email below Oh, she wrote below. Hold on. Let me go back here. Oh, okay. She says, Dave, I'd love to be on your podcast. I've got a unique experience where I grew up with a functioning alcoholic mother and a father who enabled out of thinking that was best and a sister who was in denial because she didn't see it with her own two eyes. So common that if you're not seeing that drinking and that alcoholism and that those whatever the the drunken stupor that you don't believe it, you don't you don't believe it's really not that bad. How could it be? 
That sister is actually somebody you know, but I'll wait to share that until it is, uh, I know you're interested in this or not. She actually might want to join the podcast to share her perspective. Uh, I think I will have this person on next week. What makes it unique is I worked in mental health and addiction for years, spent so much time educating people on the negative effects of drinking, the brain-body connection, and uh, and more. So uh, I'm going back to her email that she wrote just a couple of days ago. She said, loving the podcast. Uh, I am a recreational therapist, so a big piece of my role is teaching people the importance of having positive recreational activities in our lives. Listen to this one. I think it's important. Addicts need to replace the time they spend thinking about acquiring and using alcohol or drugs which is at times equivalent to a full-time job, they need to replace that with positive leisure activities. I also educated people on the importance of social support. My philosophy is you need to have regular leisure activities you do on a regular basis to stay well, like puzzles or going on a walk and activities, coping skills that you can use as needed to stay well when you've increased moments of stress, anxiety, or urges like deep breathing or guided meditation. So I'm going to work on getting Andrea on next week because, again, here is somebody with their own story and their own, again, I hate the word journey. It's so my weight loss journey. I think it's overused, but I think it's a very descriptive word. So I'm going to go ahead and use journey and say uh, uh, that everybody's got their own different journey. So, wow, we've got a long time on the podcast today. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm, I'm, I see that you're still here. So thank you for listening to the podcast. Take a shower, show up on time, and don't steal anything. Um, I appreciate your input, your feedback, and again, we're going to continue this series uh, until we run out of steam. I didn't mean it to go on this long, but people are responding, and I really am proud of the fact that uh, the listenership has grown, so tell your friends uh, about this podcast. Maybe they have a husband or a mother or a dad or a cousin who's got an alcohol issue might be the best word and then let them know about it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Take a Shower, Show Up on Time, and Don't Steal Anything.